0: You're talking up the awfulness of this episode so much that people are going to want to hear it, and it's going to be like the, like, lost show, like that Holocaust movie that Jerry Lewis made. Welcome to You're Wrong About, the show where we go to the year 2000. Oh! i believe in keeping it simple it's funny how that
1: still sounds magical 20 years later
0: yeah well it is magical because it's the distant past you know?
1: <laughs> <laughs> i am michael hobbs i'm a reporter for the huffington post
0: i'm sarah marshall i'm working on a book about the satanic panic
1: and we're on patreon at patreon.com you're wrong about and we're on paypal and we sell cute t-shirts and our listeners have been making incredible designs for us And as usual, it's quarantine. We know it's tough out there. And so don't feel remotely pressured. It's
0: tough in here also. Yes. it's tough on the insides and the outsides. It's tough everywhere. I would like to give a special shout out to all of our listeners who are listening to this show on one earbud right now because they have children. Oh, yes. We love you guys.
1: And today we're talking about Y2K, the Millennium Bug.
0: Yes. I'm excited. This
1: is a throwback episode, although our Mm -hmm. listeners probably don't know that, that... This was the first episode we ever recorded when we were first doing the show almost exactly two years ago, May 2nd, right? Well, that was when we
0: started releasing the show, but we recorded Ah, this in, like, early March of 2018. So, So, yeah. yeah, A
1: little over two years ago. Mm -hmm. And it was so bad that we, to this day, have never released it. And... Whenever we tell people that they always think that like we're being modest, like, oh, I'm sure it's fine. No, it's
0: (laughs) really bad. I listened Uh to it this week. Well, I I haven't listened to it (laughs) since we originally edited it. So thank you. I choose to believe that you're being modest, but I also choose to not attempt to confirm that independently, which speaks for itself. I bet it's like the pilot episode of 30 Rock where there's like a lot of weird long silences and you're like what is the show like normally? Like how did what's the secret sauce that happens later that I can't identify but which I know isn't here. But we thought it would be a good idea to wait
1: a while so that Sarah would forget everything I told her.
0: Yeah, we thought we decided we would wait 2 years and 2 months. Yes. And then we would take another crack. Yes. And there's actually been a lot of
1: new, weirdly, a lot of new academic research on Y2K between 2018 and now. So there's actually some like a bunch of new stuff that we're going to talk about. So this is not all going to be familiar to you.
0: I probably won't remember anything.
1: Okay, (laughs) good. Well, I think now is a good time to return to Y2K because Y2K has become this weird thing that people only bring up when they're talking about something else.
0: Right. And I feel like it comes up as a metaphor for like something that didn't happen. Yes. Like something we all thought was going to happen, but then ha ha, we yeah. reacted. When we're
1: talking about climate change, people will bring up like, oh, we were worried about Y2K too, and that turned out to be a hoax. And somebody else will respond to that by saying, no, Y2K is an example of us coming together and fixing a problem. Mm. Both of those arguments are kind of detached from what really happened in Y2K, hmm.
0: and since we have now had two years of doing this show since mm. then, I am able to extrapolate that perhaps the answer is no one is right. Yes, okay. Well, I mean, both of those arguments are correct
1: in some ways, and like both of them are incorrect in other ways. <laughs> right,
0: because they contain elements of truth, but yes. don't grasp the truth. But so now is the point in the show where
1: ordinarily I would ask you what you know about Y2K so I can myth bust you. But Uh we have tape. We have live (sighs) footage of Sarah describing this two years ago. So I thought I would just play you the clip.
0: Oh, my God.
1: And you can decide A, how bad you want to tell me the editing is. B, if you want to add anything to your description.
0: Oh, I was in my 20s then. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Here, let me send you this thing. Can you see it? A uh, little Skype machine. Yes. Three, two, one. So tell me about what you uh, what you know about.
0: The fear of it was that like all of the computers and like automated things and electronic things would break and then all of our systems would fall apart and then we would just not have a grid anymore. The amazing thing about that
1: is that your understanding now is about as good as like the U.S. Senate's understanding back then. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Like
1: that was... 1999 was kind of like the beginning of dot-com stuff.
0: Yeah, it's got that weird grading quality. Yes. That the podcast that people put no effort into (laughs) have, whereas we put in minimal effort. I did
1: this thing in our first couple episodes where when one of us would say a joke and the other would laugh, I would turn down the volume on the laugh really low. So it sounds like you're all of a sudden like 60 feet away and laughing at one of my jokes. I don't know why I did that.
0: Yeah, it's like a little late with Lily Singh. It's like one person (laughs) laughing their ass off far away. (laughs) Eerie. But do you want to add anything to your explanation of
1: what your understanding of the Y2K bug was?
0: I I don't know if I could add anything to what I said. Mm -hmm. I was 11 when we reached the year 2000. And I remember understanding that people were concerned about the fact that basically the machines that ran society were programmed using dates that mm-hmm. gave you only three digits and therefore when it reached the year 2000 they would all go to 000 or something oh, it was
1: two digits yeah two digits two
0: digits okay and because of that everything would break yes and it would be like Jurassic Park basically yes yeah
1: but so the first myth to bust is that the millennium bug was not a bug oh huh. was it an arachnid it was <laughs> It was actually, it was a design choice. It was a way of saving space. Uh We've completely, of course, forgotten about all this now, but in the early days of computing, back when there were like punch cards and when computers took up an entire room. Which is what, like the
0: early, mid-60s?
1: Yeah, 60s to 70s, basically. Mm -hmm. I interviewed a researcher about this, and one of the things he said is that, you know, in these old programming languages, they very easily could have had
0: the date at eight digits and had all four digits of the year in there, but it would have taken up too much space. Right. And if you're trying to put dudes on the moon... need all the space you can get. Exactly.
1: I mean, one of the things I cannot get over, the original Super Mario Brothers from 1985 is 40 kilobytes.
0: Wow. And this file that you just sent me that I listened to is 681 kilobytes. Yeah. There just was not space for anything
1: extraneous. So they made the choice that we're only going to do dates in six digits.
0: So like year, month, day. Okay. Yeah.
1: So year, year, month, month, day, day. Okay. Yeah. And there were people in the seventies writing papers in magazines saying like, this might be bad. Like, let's, let's proceed with caution here, guys. This might not be such a great idea. But then everybody
0: was like, whatever, it's 30 years away. Right. Everyone, as everyone always does, said whatever. That's a problem for like our kids or something. Exactly. Which is what every generation says. And they're like, why aren't our kids buying real estate? And it's like, Maybe because you made choices that we're dealing with right now. And so it was only in 1993
1: with the publication of an article called Doomsday 2000 that the country started to get worried about (laughs) this. That sounds
0: like a movie where Robert Duvall is on a (laughs) death race across the American Southwest.
1: One of the quotes from it is, we and our computers are supposed to make life easier. Mm. What we have delivered is a catastrophe.
0: Doomsday 2000. So
1: this was the beginning of people starting to get nervous about it. And it wasn't actually that all of the software would crash. It was actually more about the hardware. So the phrase that became really important in the panic about Y2K was embedded systems. So the idea is that... All of the infrastructure of modern life has chips within it. Mm-hmm. Most of these chips have like a little clock inside of them. Like they have very basic, very rudimentary systems inside to just like make the thing work. Like clock radios have little chips in them with like the dates in them. Hmm. This this is a list from one of the articles that came out in 1999 of all of the things that have these embedded systems in them in these ways that are like kind of murky and kind of difficult to sort out. So... Personal computers, surveillance equipment, lighting systems, entry systems, barcode systems, clock-in machines, vending machines, switchboards, safes and time locks, elevators, faxes, production line equipment, ATM machines, military command control systems, IRS tax computations.
0: Mm-hmm. Vending machines and military command control systems are two <laughs> things I would be concerned about.
1: And so the idea was basically that everything from, you know, traffic lights to like MRI machines... Have these chips embedded in them. And it wasn't clear at the time sort of what it would take to fix it because you don't even really know what the problem is. Like you don't really know like, well, is my clock radio going to stop working or is it just going to think that it's 1900 for the rest of its natural life and who cares?
0: Well, my understanding as an 11 year old was that the clock radio would think it was 1900 and be like, oh, my God. I shouldn't exist. Yes. And then it would like (laughs) burst into flame or something. Yeah, like
1: back to the future. It would start to disappear like I don't exist yet. Yes.
0: Yes. That's what I thought would happen.
1: So this is an excerpt from a really interesting oral history that was published a few years ago. This is a quote from the guy that wrote the Doomsday 2000 article. So what he says is, most people didn't seem to understand the depth of the programming we depend on. It's not unusual for a bank Mm. to have in excess of 50,000 programs. So when you say we have a two-digit problem, Why don't you just expand it to four digits? Okay, fine. Where are they? In which databases? And by the way, which ones are you going to fix first? To fix this one, you have to fix that one. And to fix that one, you have to fix the other one. And to fix the other one, you have to fix the vendor. Mm. And so another one of the phrases that went around at the time was this idea of cascading faults. Mm. If one of these systems breaks, well, all these other systems are dependent on that one system. Mm -hmm. So a really interesting example of this by one of these guys in this oral history of a computer researcher at the Co-Intelligence Institute He talks about how this was in the mid-90s, he was riding an Amtrak train and the train stopped in the middle of the tracks and it sat there for four hours and it turned out that the computer system that runs the Amtrak train had to reboot for some reason. And in rebooting, it also shut down the air conditioning system and Uh. in shutting down the air conditioning system, it also shut down the ventilation system.
0: Uh. So
1: people are sitting there in the heat in these cars with like bathrooms in them yeah, and it's starting to get smelly and it's starting to get stuffy.
0: And you can't open the windows. Yeah.
1: And people are getting really on edge. And so Uh there was this
0: realization that like, first of all, Amtrak trains have computers? Right. I know. I would not have guessed that. It's a chuchu train. That's as far as my thinking goes on the matter. I guess it's not a chuchu train, though. There's no chuchu on it. There's a bleep bloop. Yes.
1: (laughs) So these were the kinds of stories that went around that it's like, guys, computers are everywhere. Computers are in cars now. Computers are in airplanes. And we don't really understand the architecture of these systems.
0: Computers are in hot dogs. You guys didn't know that. (laughs) Hot
1: dogs are going to stop working. I also think a really important statistic from the time was that only 50% of the population had personal computers. Mm -hmm. So it was like computers were normal enough that people had them, but they were also new enough that people didn't really understand how they worked.
0: I've been thinking lately about the fact that it's very interesting that millennials have been branded like the first generation online. Mm-hmm. Millennials are also the last generation with any living memory of what it was like before the Internet, yeah. you know, had taken over American infrastructure. Yeah. And before online reality was as real as meat space reality. In
1: that weird transition period, too, where yeah. computers weren't everywhere yet. But they were, like, here. The,
0: like, existence period. Like, people didn't really know what to be afraid of, right? Like, the net comes out. There's also the thing, and this is a way that the net is silly, but it's a way that every mid-'90s movie was forced to be silly. Also, Mission Impossible really jumps to my mind, where they're like, okay, we're using computers as a plot element, but everyone knows that a computer is this, like, weird, slow, dusty thing that hums, <laughs> and it can, like... <sighs> barely play games It like overheats right. if you play mist on it. But Tom Cruise is going to hack into the CIA in about yeah. five minutes from a dial-up internet connection right. in Europe.
1: <laughs> and so Dylan Mulvin, who's this, one of the only researchers who specializes in Y2K, he's writing a book and I interviewed him. He said, what was interesting about it was Y2K had a definite deadline. Like we knew exactly when the Y2K bug was going to happen, but it had indefinite mm effects. Hmm. So we knew that like these embedded systems were everywhere, but we didn't know what was going to be affected or how. And that was one of the things that drove a lot of the paranoia about what was going to happen.
0: So would it be accurate to say there are a lot of unknown unknowns? Yes. Yeah. It's like the thing where Pablo Escobar buys hippos for his private zoo and then they go feral and now they just live in Colombia and they just are there. It's like, what are the Escobar hippos in this scenario going to be? Like, we don't know.
1: And so it basically became this thing that anything you could imagine wasn't like totally outside the realm of possibility, right? It's Mm -hmm. like, it might be all of the traffic lights stop working or it might be all of the traffic lights turned green.
0: What's going to happen to all the audio animatronics at Disney World for the love of God? (laughs) And I remember this being an item of significant national concern. Like, I remember people talking about this a lot. Oh, yeah. And for a long time. And was and so is that like me being in kind of a liberal bubble? Like, was this a bipartisan concern also? I mean, it's actually
1: one of my conclusions about this is that it's it's like the last example of like all of us coming together and hmm. doing something.
0: And then concluding that it wasn't worth it exactly. and we shouldn't have bothered. <laughs> yeah. But it it didn't
1: really take on a partisan valence, but it was a huge deal. So it was only really in 1996 that people started to get nervous about it. Like that's when the government efforts ramped up. That's when the corporate efforts ramped up. And between 1996 and 1999, congressional committees – held 100 hearings. The GAO issued 160 reports, like guidance to companies and assessments of how the government was doing. The estimates now are that the US government spent $9 billion wow. on fixing it, and the private sector spent around $100 billion. Wow. They put together a task force of CEOs. They passed a law saying that large companies had to be public about what they were doing and had to issue guidance to small companies. Oh, wow. They appointed a Y2K czar. Wow. The Federal Reserve started printing a bunch of extra cash just in case there were bank runs. Hmm. It was huge.
0: Yeah. It's interesting that this also led to corporate regulation. Like, we took this so seriously that we were like, the federal government is going to tell the private sector what to do. Yeah. And that was acceptable enough to everyone that it actually happened. Yeah. Because, like, I'm not shocked when companies are told to stop poisoning children and they're like, but at what cost? (laughs) (laughs)
1: BOOF <laughs> The uh, one of the members of parliament in the UK called it the greatest mobilization since World War II. Wow. This was also one of the things that Dylan Mulvin told me is that he figured out that this was one of the first times we got large scale gig work and large scale outsourcing.
0: Wow. So millennials have been marked from like the moment that we started preparing for the millennium. Yeah, man. Wow. One of the
1: vulnerabilities in the US tech sector was that we used an old coding language called COBOL and... By some coincidence, a lot of programmers in India also use COBOL or learn COBOL. Huh. And so this was one of the first times that big companies were like, well, we've got like millions of lines of code that we need to update. There's all these people in India that know how to do this. So like, let's set up some outsourcing infrastructure. So this was a huge ramp up in outsourcing technical grunt work style labor to developing countries in the tech sector. It was the first time they realized they could oh, do this.
0: this is outsourcing actual skilled work. Yeah.
1: And so by 1999, 51% of Americans were saying they would avoid air travel in the months before and after Y2K. 42% were saying they would stockpile food and water. Mm-hmm. And 6% of Americans said they were planning to withdraw all of their money from the bank. Mm. And this, this, of course gave rise to all of this weird prepper community. I don't think it was the first time the preppers had, like, used something as an excuse, but, like, Mm -hmm. gun magazines started doing special Y2K issues. Mm.
0: I'm, like, thinking about preppers a lot these days. Oh, yeah. I'm interested in the relationship between the prepper mentality where you're, like, just waiting for the penny to drop so that society can crumble and you can, like, be in your compound with your ammunition and your canned cling peaches and how that seems to go hand in hand with the sort of conservative mentality where someone's like, stay home, please just like watch some shows and get some dominoes and being like, how dare you?
1: Do you want me to remind you what you said in our show two years ago? Because I just listened to it the other day.
0: Yes. (laughs) You
1: said (laughs) you get the feeling that some people are sort of looking forward to this, that like, people want something bad to happen.
0: Well, and that was what I thought two years ago. And I'm like, okay, it's happening. Like, why aren't people just like, I'm going to stay home? Yeah. Like, if you're waiting your whole life for an excuse to not engage with society, then why do you get so sad about it changing slightly?
1: I know. This is what's so, I don't know. I just think this was the first cross-pollination of the internet and conspiracy theories and capitalism. Oh. But I think alongside this prepper community, mm-hmm. there's always profiteering.
0: But you think a lot of it is like P.T. Barnum
1: types. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the first times we saw websites pop up, like Alex Jones style, right? Where it's like one half of the website is like the government is trying to kill you, they're poisoning the water. And then the other half of the website is like Let me sell you supplements that will cure the poison that they're putting in the
0: water. Is this the beginning of supplements as we now know them? Yeah. Or like conservative supplements? And like food kits, like people were selling like gallon, bucket, whatever
1: things of food supplies basically so like when like the purge happens on January 1st, we'll be ready. Right. It got so bad, poor Bill Richardson, the governor of New Mexico, had to warn his constituents, he's like, don't stockpile gasoline because gasoline explodes. Like don't keep jugs of gasoline in your house
0: because you're more likely to die from that than you are from the actual Y2K. Yeah. I was listening to a guy on NPR last night who was like, yeah, obviously we don't want you to inject cleaning supplies. And it's like, "Just, just yell at people a little. Just tell them no. Well, I actually think... The government, I mean, if you look at
1: the old government warnings, what they all say is they all say, don't panic, but kind of panic, right? So a lot of the statements that you read in old newspapers, you know, journalists, of course, would call up like the secretary of transportation or whatever. And they'd say like, you know, we don't expect any negative impact. We expect everything to be fine, dot, dot, dot. And some traffic lights will probably go out. So you should be ready for that. So it's like, well, if you're telling people not to worry, but you're also telling them that traffic lights might go out, like a bunch of traffic lights going out is a actually kind of a big deal and b a sign that something much bigger is happening.
0: Right. And also it's like as an American, you're going to assume that if a traffic light goes out, it'll be the one that you are interfacing with. Exactly. I also think as Americans, the impulse to think that the government doesn't have your best interests at heart is like, not crazy. Right. I think you can disagree with the logic of someone's misgivings, but Mm. it's unfair to tell them their perspective is, is meaningless if it's based on the idea of fearing those in power. Right.
1: Well, no, I mean, you're right in that one of the first things to happen is, of course, conspiracy theories. And I'm fascinated by, like, the structure of conspiracy theories, that it's always the same, like, four arguments, just, like, phrased in different ways. Like the screenplays. Yes.
0: <laughs> what are the basic arguments of conspiracy theories?
1: Well, I mean, there's this guy named Mike Adams, but he started something called Y2K Newswire. <laughs> that was like, of course, uh, you know, pretending to be like Y2K News, but was really just like the panic digest. Like, all he did was reasons that you should be scared.
0: All these descriptions feel like they're from a very specific and charming moment in yeah. history. It's like the Y2K <laughs> Newswire. Tuesday, yeah. 2000. Like, I love it. I know. And so he put out a
1: list of 39, quote unquote, unanswered questions about Y2K. And number 18 is, if Y2K is a non-event, why did the federal government spend $50 million on a Y2K oh, command bunker?
0: I realize it's tiresome that I continue to draw these comparisons. But again, it's like the argument that we're seeing and we'll continue to see of like, If coronavirus is such a big threat, then why haven't more people been dying? And it's like, (laughs) presumably because we've been making good choices and should continue to make good choices. But yeah, it's like the successfulness of any attempt to avert danger will always be used by someone to prove that the danger wasn't really there.
1: Right. Another one that shows up a lot in conspiracy theories is false premises. So see if you can spot the false premises in this. Mm. Why are Californians urged to have a two-week stockpile of supplies for earthquake preparedness, but only a three-day stockpile for Y2K?
0: Oh, they're saying the government is misleading Californians. Right. Right. That it's like it's deliberately understating
1: the threat, right, that we're taking Uh earthquakes seriously but we're not taking Y2K seriously. What people point out when they debunk this is that California doesn't tell people to have a two-week supply of food for earthquakes. It says they should have a 72-hour supply. Mm. So it's like you're literally just making up this thing.
0: Well, yeah, and I'm sure this guy is like, what are you going to do, ask Jeeves? Are you going to go on Lightcoats and wait for 49 minutes to go to four web pages to try and fact check me? No.
1: This is my favorite one. Why is it socially acceptable to buy fire insurance, car insurance, or life insurance, but not food insurance by having some extra food stored away? Through what mechanism did the Boy Scout motto, Be Prepared, become politically incorrect? Will the Boy Scouts now be called extremists? (gasps) Oh. This is, like, one of my favorite moves in conspiracy thinking is that mm-hmm. you say, like, this thing that is, like, kind of on some level reasonable. It's like, why are you telling me to prepare for things like fires and you're not telling me to prepare for things like Y2K? Like, whatever. That's, that's relatively reasonable. But then it's mm-hmm. like in two more moves, he's like, the Boy Scouts think I should be prepared. Why do you hate the Boy Scouts? <laughs>
0: right it's like when did you stop beating your wife yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. i'm also i wonder about you know with conspiracy theories Mm -hmm. how much of the work is being done with this kind of emotional hopscotch that happens Mm. inside of the person consuming this media or listening to the speech or whatever it's called a dog whistle for a reason you can present a phrase or an idea That puts someone in an emotional state Mm. where then it like it doesn't really matter what you say because you've got them kind of nicely whipped up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And like at that stage in the emotional recipe, it's like, well, you've got whip now like time to make meringue like it doesn't really matter what kind of argument you then present to someone because you've, they've reached this malleable state. Right. Once again, it's very emotionally based. It's exactly. just emotionally saturated right. thinking.
1: This is the classic move, right? Is that all of a sudden you're whipping up anger about like these people won't even let me be in the Boy Scouts or whatever, no. which isn't true. <laughs> But it's like uh-huh. you're fomenting all this this completely meaningless anger. When, when it's really, it's like, well, all they're saying is that it might not be super prudent for you to stockpile food, but also it's not illegal to stockpile food. Like if you want to go to the store. Right, like no one cares what you're like, doing. Like no one really. actually cares. But it's like to get people into this emotional state where you can sell them things and you can convince them of things, mm. you have to get them on this much larger distrust of society and distrust of the media and distrust of the government.
0: Also, I feel like there were a lot of Boy Scout related controversies in the 90s. Oh my God, yeah. We we spent a lot of time on that. We should do an episode about the Boy Scouts. Yeah.
1: Also, there was, um, do you want to guess who the person, remember, this is the late 1990s. Do you want to guess? Jesse Ventura. close. Uh, (laughs) Do you want to guess who was selling a videotape for $28 Uh, called A Christian's Guide to the Millennium Book? Was it Jim Baker? No, Jerry Falwell. Close. Oh, okay. Do you know how much $28 was in 1999? That's so much money for a video. It was
0: probably a Star Wars VHS set at Costco. Yes. Yes. You could have gone to Endor and back, but instead you got Jerry Falwell yelling at you. And also I love how Christian media goes for these cash grabs of like, a Christian guide yeah. to something it's impossible to do in a Christian way, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't
1: explicitly branded as Christian, but there's mm-hmm. also a book called Y2K for Women, well, how-, how to Protect Your Home and Family in the Coming Crisis.
0: No, oh. Is it about how you have to keep putting out sexually even after all the audio <laughs> animatronics start rampaging through Anaheim?
1: And so I couldn't get the text of this, but I did find it on Amazon. And uh-huh. all the reviews are five stars, except for one one star uh-huh. review from a guy named Jim. <gasps> this is written by a woman called Karen Anderson. So Jim says, I worked for a large utility on the West Coast for Y2K, and one of my jobs was to answer the questions of people about the power systems and Y2K. Karen and her band of ardent followers drove us nuts with questions about things that couldn't possibly happen because none of them had any understanding of how power systems worked. (laughs) They also accused us of lying and being part of a vast conspiracy that still exists in their minds... As part of a general anti-government sentiment.
0: Did Jim go into any specifics <laughs> no, beyond that? Oh my I wanted, god. I want to hear more
1: from Jim. <laughs> like, what have you been through, Jim? Jim. <laughs> we're we're waiting. This was a time of like genuine grift bonanza. Genuine grift bonanza. Yeah, good old G B. One of the things I love is Jerry Falwell and these other Christian right people started coming up with this idea. There's, you know, of course there's the divine rapture, which we all know is coming, but then there's also something that they branded as the Civil rupture. What? Which is like how
0: governments are going to collapse. Okay, of course. I mean, the, why not? Because yeah. they're similar sounding words, so that makes sense. It's very good. Mm.
1: There were also a lot of really good scams. There was a guy in the UK who was selling people CD-ROMs that he said would make your computer Y2K compliant and people checked them later and apparently they literally did nothing. Like the only (gasps) thing they did was just like make a window come up. They're like bleep, bloop, bleep. It's compliant. I bet people got genuine peace of mind from the, the bleep bloops. There were also phone scams where people would call up and say, hi there, I'm calling from your bank. We're checking to see if all the cards are Y2K compliant. So if you could just read no. me your credit card number, no, then I can tell you whether it's compliant or not. We'll send you a sticker no. to put on your card. Oh, and boy. people were like, 507. <laughs> <Like> they just <laughs> started doing it.
0: It's like, no. Yeah, It's Aw Sweetie 2000.
1: <laughs> people would call people up and pretend to be banks and say like, we're the only ones that have a vault That is, like, Y2K compliant vault. So, like, we want you to move all your money to our bank. So, like, you just transfer your money to some random account. Wow. My favorite one is the Australian version of the SEC. They set up a... Millennium Bug Insurance Company, like as an April Fool's joke, literally, they're like, we're setting up a Millennium Bug Insurance Company. Come get Millennium Mm -hmm. Bug Insurance to like demonstrate how gullible people were, like to troll the entire Australian population. And people deposited $4 million. Like people (gasps) people are offered to to deposit $4 million. (laughs) And
0: then they funded an indie movie. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So before we get into what actually happened on January 1st, 2000, I think it's worth dwelling on like why this became such a big deal. Mm -hmm. You know, there's other threats out there, right? There's like super volcanoes and earthquakes in Seattle. Like why did we focus on this as like the threat that we're going to spend billions of dollars facing? Mm -hmm. So... One researcher who works on this named Lisa Vox, her theory is that basically after the Cold War, we had like a apocalypse deficit. Like we didn't have (laughs) nuclear war anymore. So we kind of needed something because there was this vacuum.
0: Right. Everyone spent the 90s just like waiting for the other shoe to drop and buying ever greater sizes of khaki. There was also –
1: I actually think this is a really important – reason why it was bipartisan and a really important reason why it got to the size that it did is that fixing Y2K for 99.9% of people didn't require any trade-offs. Right. You know, climate change means that like maybe you don't drive to work anymore. Like maybe you have to take the bus or like maybe your taxes go up. For Y2K, it was literally just like tech companies have to spend more money and like the government will like give, you know, small business loans or print some more money. But like, You don't have to do anything.
0: It was kind of like that thing. Do you remember as a kid how you would collect the tabs from soda cans? Oh, yeah. And there'd be places where you could deposit them or you Mm -hmm. could like mail them in somewhere and they were supposed to like get people kidneys. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I haven't researched it. I'm curious about the actual ratio of soda can tabs to kidneys if there Mm. was one. But it was something that it made sense for people to do because mm-hmm. it feels good and it doesn't harm you. Yeah. You're not like, oh, I had a plan for that soda yeah. can't tab.
1: And also, it was this was the middle of the dot-com bubble. So there were billions of dollars flowing into the tech sector.
0: Right. All that pets.com. Yeah.
1: By... But so, I mean, people were working their asses off to fix this. But I mean, politics is basically the art of deciding who will feel pain right? Like who oh should be God. affected in a crisis? Like should it be renters or should uh, it be landlords? Should it be workers or should it be owners? Like
0: should it be people who are accustomed to feeling pain and feel it all the time and know it as a way of life? Exactly. Or should it be the people who aren't used to it and will go, ouch?
1: I don't know. It's just sort of, it's like, it's the last gasp of like bipartisan cross-governmental togetherness, but it's also kind of a gimme Hmm. in that it's not bipartisanship for something hard. It's
0: bipartisanship for something extremely easy. Right. It's like we are coming together as a nation to do routine maintenance because we have to. So...
1: Now we get to December 31st, 1999.
0: I'm 11 years old. I'm super excited. Do you remember you did that night? Yes. I remember my parents lived in Hawaii. So Mm -hmm. I remember being at the beach that night. Mm -hmm. And I remember a couple having what looked from a distance to be like a romantic moment. And I remember screaming, it's the new millennium at the moment. Mm. of midnight. And I imagine ruining that moment for them. <laughs> I don't know what I was excited about or why it was exciting. It just was like really big. Yeah. It was like one of the times, one of the last times maybe of optimism about
1: the future. Right. Cause we hmm. were like entering this new technological golden age and mm-hmm. Y2K was like the first example of maybe this golden age isn't as gold. Like, there's going to be some little blips along the way. But there Mm -hmm. was this sense of huge possibility.
0: Oh, yeah. There is this very retro-futuristic feel about it. Yeah. And by by retro-futuristic, I mean the kind of look and feel of, like, Tomorrowland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have an attachment to the kind of, nuclear age, utopian ideas about technology and what it can do of the 60s, where like Mm -hmm. the atom was going to take us into this clean, amazing power that was going to allow us to live like the Jetsons. Hmm. And I feel like the year 2000 felt a little bit like that, too, because it was like this idea that we had, I think that technology would make humanity better because the absolute candy-colored optimism of the 60s, it feels to me like it's based on on that kind of a belief. And now it yeah. feels like, yeah, the T-Rex has stomped out of the paddock and eaten enough children that it, I I certainly don't feel that way.
1: Well, one thing I think is so striking about these big technological leaps forward is that every single time we tell ourselves that they're going to be uncomplicatedly good. Yeah. And like, <laughs> it, never <happens. laughs> like it, it never happens. Like, it never happens. Like, When TVs first came into homes, they thought that would be this era of mass literacy because you could beam education into people's homes directly and like, oh, kids won't even need school anymore. People
0: will sit at home and watch Shakespeare. And that's why old TV is like incredibly boring because it's like Alcoa Playhouse presents a man for all seasons.
1: (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to send you a clip from the BBC on the night of. Ooh. And they're first starting to see the little blips of problems I'm excited that are showing up in other time zones. Here's this. Okay. Okay.
2: 25, 35 minutes from now, we'll know what's happening in this country, what's happened over all the rest of the world. Those bugs are going to crawl all over our computers and make the planes fall out of the sky. Are they doing it or not? Well, now let's look at our bug watch map. Here it is. And the big threat really seems to be in japan nothing much has happened in southeast asia when you get to japan the bug seems to have struck possibly struck in two places two very rather serious incidents uh, at ishikawa and onagawa both of them nuclear power plants at ishikawa and the radiation monitoring system has failed uh, just outside the actual nuclear reactor itself that happened at midnight it hasn't been put right they don't know whether it's bug related At the Onagawa power station, alarms sounded after midnight, but they seem to have put that right. Also in Japan, 38 earthquake seismic sensors seem to have failed since midnight. Again, they can't be sure whether that is bug-related or not.
0: Ah, okay. That was stressful to listen to. Right. Because he's like, a nuclear power plant in Japan is having some problems. Is it related to the Y2K bug? We have no idea. Yeah. But we're just going to keep talking about it real fast. I think it's a youthful clip because
1: it shows that, first of all, there were actually like a lot more glitches than we know about. Like this was not a complete nothing burger, (laughs) but what's really interesting is that he's describing a bunch of glitches that seem like, oh my God, there's this like avalanche of glitches happening in like nuclear reactors. Like it's so bad. But then also, he's also describing things like the monitoring system has gone down.
0: Right. It's He's like, 38 earthquake sensors. Right. So what we get on
1: midnight of January 1st, 2000 is a relatively sizable number of these kinds of glitches, but no glitches that are like really consequential. Hmm. There's a Senate report that's published in February of 2000 that lists... Maybe a hundred of these things, like all the glitches that they could confirm. And so here, I'm going to read you a couple of these. Okay. Hundreds of Knoxville Utility Board bills were printed with incorrect payment due dates, either in January 1900 or January 2099. (laughs) A power outage in Carson City, Nevada for 30 minutes. That's the only power outage we know of. Really? Yeah. Wow. Medicare payments were delayed one day because of a Y2K problem with the electric fund transfer through a bank that handles the transactions. 911 systems broke down in North Carolina. Long Mm. distance phone service was out in parts of central Montana for about three hours. Mm. Godiva Chocolate experienced total systems failure, including cash registers in its New York store, but they were back in operation within three
0: hours. This is like weirdly soothing to listen to because it's just like a nice list of like consequenceless problems. Exactly. Yes. It's like Godiva couldn't run their cash registers for three hours. And you're like, oh. That's nice that the news is about people being inconvenienced. Yeah, yeah.
1: There's, for whatever reason, a lot of the ones that they mention in the Senate report are about slot machines.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, it's just nice to have this national epidemic of, like, very minor problems. So there's only one, like,
1: real problem that's, like, actually extremely tragic. And so mm. let's do it now because it's, it's bad. Okay. So the actual worst one that we know of is in the U.K., the NHS sent out 154 false positive test (gasps) results to pregnant women telling them that their children had Down syndrome. Oh, my God. And two women terminated the pregnancy as a result before they figured out that it was a Y2K-based error.
0: That's horrible. That's terrible.
1: That's the only one we know of that is, like, tragically awful bad. Yeah. Interestingly, and I think this is really important, Three of the glitches that they mention in the Senate report about Y2K preparedness are caused by Y2K preparedness, not Hmm. by Y2K itself. And what are those? So the District of Columbia, Washington, D.C., replaced all of its software – And all of their budget reports basically got, like, wiped. Hmm. The government listings in the Milwaukee white pages were, quote, so riddled with errors that the publisher has agreed to reprint that section and hand-deliver it for free to consumers next month. The company updated its software last year to make it Y2K compliant, but the software had bugs and introduced errors into the system. Mm-hmm. They also, this is really weird. Do you remember Lamont's? No. It was like, it was like a, whatever, Nordstrom, Macy's, like any other department store. It was in the Pacific, it was only in the Pacific Northwest. Hmm. They went bankrupt in 2000 and the Senate report blames their bankruptcy on Y2K because <laughs> apparently they spent $10 million. Mm installing new computerized registers to get ready for Y2K. And that was one of the things that contributed to their bankruptcy. But then it's also like if you're a giant department store with 38 stores and you go bankrupt, I don't think it's like your new cash registers, son. Like I don't think that's (laughs) it. I don't know how it ended up in the Senate report.
0: But maybe it salves your wounded pride.
1: But I think it's those two categories of glitches I think are important because Whenever there's a problem that you're preparing for, there's always the possibility that fixing the problem will cause more damage than the problem itself. Mm -hmm. And so this one Senate report, which is called Y2K, a crisis averted, is essentially the only assessment that we've ever had of whether this $100 billion that the U.S. spent getting ready for Y2K was worth it. There's never been an independent investigation. There's never been a task force. Basically, as soon as it happened, nobody wanted to look back for it. Hmm. Partly because this whole idea that it was a hoax, that it was bullshit all along, we didn't have to do anything about it. This understanding was already forming.
0: I mean, I remember feeling like, oh, I really thought that like something would happen. Me too. Totally. Yeah. Like, I at least thought the power would go out. I mean, this is, you know, since this happened, we've basically been
1: locked in this debate of... Was it a nothing burger to begin with? Could we have done nothing? Or did we fix it? Like in the same way we're having this debate now of like, well, are the not that bad effects the result of our preparation? Or are they evidence that we never needed to prepare in the first place? Right, mm. And so the, the rest of this episode is basically walking through the arguments mm-hmm. because I think, like I mentioned at the beginning, like both arguments have merit, but both arguments are also, I think, kind of
0: wrong. As always, it is truth and falsehood bridge mix.
1: <laughs> yes. Okay, to walk through the argument that it was a hoax, to me, the closest thing to a compelling argument – is that there's essentially only four countries that made any significant effort to solve it. Hmm. America, the UK, Canada, and Australia. Hmm. There was a survey in 1999 that in Italy, only 15% of the population had even heard of the Y2K bug. Hmm. So like Germany, Italy, Japan, there was no government efforts. There was no funding. There was no like stimulus money for this. It was just full on like, we're just going to wait for it to happen and then if there's any glitches, we're going to fix them. Mm-hmm. The counter argument to that is always that like, well, Germany and Italy are like not advanced as the U.S. So like the U.S. had to do way more of this preparation because we're the center of tech, we're the center of the tech boom. For whatever reason, America also has more of this cobalt coding language because it was mandatory to use it by the military and for government contracts for a really long Mm -hmm. time. So for whatever reason, we have like a higher density of this programming language. So that does necessitate more efforts in America. But then to me, that doesn't explain why like the UK put a billion pounds into fixing this and Germany put zero pounds into fixing this. And they both Mm -hmm. essentially had the same number of errors on January 2000. Hmm. So like Even if America is like uniquely poorly positioned for this problem, that's not really an argument that the UK was uniquely poorly positioned too. Mm -hmm. There's also the argument that, you know, the kinds of glitches that happened on Y2K, those glitches happen all the time. Mm. You know, things like the 911 system going out, like that's literally something that happens every day in America. Like some state, some city's 911 system goes down and then gets brought back up again. These casinos where the slot machines turned off and turned back on again they all say they're like yeah this happens like once a month when like dave trips over the cord fucking dave my favorite one is that in 2019 relatively recently a mm-hmm. raccoon caused a power outage for 10,000 people in ohio Because Uh it got into one of the circuit breakers and chewed through one of the wires. Was the raccoon okay? It might not have been great for the raccoon. I don't know. At any given time, 1% to 2% of the ATMs in the country are out of order.
0: Right. Little things always go wrong in America. And like, were there even more little things at this moment than there are normally? Or was it just that we were looking for little things? Right.
1: And I think, I mean, the Senate... Had a reason to spin this as a crisis averted because they spent nine million dollars on it. No one wants to put out a report afterwards. It's like, oh, uh, we really fucked up here, guys. And like Germany did nothing. Right. This is my theory for why they included the fucking Lamonts bankruptcy in the Y two K glitches. Was like they just wanted any glitches they could find. Yeah. So that's basically like the the it was a nothing burger that we could have done nothing about. That's like the argument for it is basically comparing us to other countries and saying like the kinds of glitches that it caused, like we could have just waited for the glitches to happen and fix them, which is what Germany and other countries did. They were just like, yeah, we're just going to wait. Mm-hmm. And if something happens, like we'll just turn off and on our slot machines.
0: And then that argument is like more or less persuasive, I think, based on what is the potential financial and human cost to waiting for things to go wrong and yes. then dealing with it then and how much can we estimate that? And yeah, yeah. To the extent that we can grasp it, how much does it compare to the difficulty of what we would have to do to prepare in advance?
1: Exactly. And, like, you don't want to wait. Like, if there's a chance of, like, an airplane falling out of the sky, you can't be like, "Work and going wait. Like, there's clearly <laughs> – there's some disasters that you can wait for and there's some that you can't. Mm-hmm. But so now we're going to do the argument for – No, it was something that was real and we came together and solved it. And -hmm. so I think the first and the biggest argument for this is just like talk to anyone who worked in IT in the late 1990s and like they will tell you like we worked our asses off. We worked overtime. The code was janky as fuck. All these systems needed to be modernized Hmm. anyway.
0: Oh, this is interesting. So is it like everything was kind of like hanging by a thread in a lot of significant ways, but the only way to motivate to update the nation's technological infrastructure was to generate support for this big push around this one specific thing that people could get really worried about. I mean, that makes sense. I feel like the only way... To get people to execute routine maintenance work is to scare the shit out of them about what could go wrong.
1: At the time, a lot of companies had sort of sleepwalked into having some technology associated with their business. Hmm. One of the articles that I read talks about how very few companies, even large companies, had chief information officers at the time. Like someone really high level in the company who's like, I'm in charge of all of our technology. And so what Y2K did Was it made CEOs who were like, you know, dads in sneakers who like didn't really know that much about technology. It made them all of a sudden be like, wait a minute, I'm kind of running a tech company. Mm. Whoever was running Amtrak at the time had to be like, hang on a minute, our trains could shut down at any time because of like weird software shit. So like, I need to take this stuff seriously.
0: Well, I I feel like it's great that there can have been a phenomenon that forced people to embrace the complexity of the technology that they were trying to use to generate profit and to, you know, treat that with some respect.
1: And the vulnerabilities that they had too. Yeah. What Y2K really pushed companies to do was to start testing. Mm. Banks started doing like financial forecasting into the future. And we're like, okay, well, let's do something from like 1995 to 2005 and see what the computers do. And then the computers are like, ah, no. And then are like, okay, we have to fix this. We can't be running on this like jalopy ass code anymore. That's such like a cute computer voice. That was my computer voice.
0: <laughs> and they were like, oh, she's suffering. <laughs>
1: yeah. And so – One of the things that one of these researchers points out is that in the 1980s, British grocery stores were noticing that the barcodes of some items wouldn't scan. And it turned out that they had expiration dates that were in 2000. You know, some some products, you know, have like an expiration date of like 10 years in the future. Hmm. And they'll be like bloop and they won't bloop. Hmm. But actually, they were catching those things and fixing them.
0: Uh, long before the public ever found out about it uh, Okay. So wait, I want to try and anticipate a twist. Ooh. Does it seem as if Germany has done nothing to prevent Y2K because they just finished their work early <laughs> and are sitting quietly <laughs> under a tree and reading in December 1999? That would be very
1: Germany of them. That's like half the answer, but we will get there. Okay. This, so one of the, this researcher that I interviewed, Dylan Mulvin, Also point out to me, this is fascinating, that for years, one of the most vexing problems in like banking IT was Mm -hmm. fucking leap years. That like, (laughs) try explaining to a computer that like once every four years, we have this extra day, unless it's a century year, in which case we don't have the extra day, unless it's a century day every 400 years, and then we do. Have it. And the computer's like, "Why did you bring me into your illogical world?" Exactly. And so, famously, the year two thousand was a leap year. Huh? It shouldn't have been because it's a century year, but then it should have been because it's a once every four hundred century year.
0: Because the year sixteen hundred was a leap year. <laughs> yes. So, it's like these kinds of problems, especially in financial
1: institutions, like you know, your entire bank account gets wiped out overnight. These kinds of problems were being noticed and being fixed by bank IT people long before the rest of the country was figuring out about this stuff. So, you know, saying it was this big nothing burger erases all this labor by IT people who were like, Punk, we were working on this long before you read that fucking article in 1993. We've (laughs) known about this.
0: It's a thing. So a story about what happens if you actually try turns into a story about how trying is pointless and it's for nerds. It's not good. It's not good. I also find this pretty convincing
1: that like a lot of companies that were testing their systems and finding like massive glitches. It's not like they're going to tell the public about that, right? Like if you're American Airlines and you're like, oh, yeah, we tested something and like all of our planes were going to fall out of the sky, just want to let you know.
0: Right. Like we're relying on companies to do their own disclosure of what could have happened. Yes. You chuckleheads would have been up the creek without a paddle if if old Brian here hadn't caught that line of code. Well, I mean,
1: I still find it pretty compelling that some countries spent Zero dollars and some countries spent many dollars, and that they both had effectively the same number of glitches. So, I think when IT people talk about, like, you know, look, we worked our asses off doing overtime, fixing these bugs, I think you could also look at that and say, like, well, a lot of those banks, a lot of those tech companies, a lot of those airlines would have done that anyway. Mm. I mean, banks have an incentive for their customers' accounts not to go to zero dollars. Like, airlines have an incentive for the planes not to fall out of the sky, I find it pretty convincing that like they might have just solved those problems on their own. And we could have spent $9 billion like fighting against like the enduring poverty glitch or like other societal (laughs) glitches that we spend less of our effort on.
0: It's interesting to have a story where it seems like the government over responded. That isn't war. I know. And also that Work is a constant in our lives, like mm-hmm. just systems need to be worked on in order to run. And the fact that we can't see with our own eyes where that work went exactly doesn't right. mean that it went nowhere Yeah. Yeah. And so
1: this brings us to our final twist.
0: Hmm. This is basically the answer to the
1: question, why did only four countries... Fuck with Y2K. Like, (laughs) why these four countries? So when I tell you the countries again, tell me if anything stands out to you as being in common. Okay. America, the UK, Canada, and Australia.
0: They're English-speaking countries. Yes. And I presume that that might have an effect on how we are writing dates.
1: Mm, Oh, close. Okay. All right. They also have English legal systems. Oh. So one of the things that's common across all of those countries is that they're really big into legal liability. Oh. And using lawsuits to fix social problems. So one of the major memory hold aspects of Y2K was how fucking terrified corporate America was of getting sued. (laughs) So there were articles coming out in 1999. I found a really interesting projection that said if Y2K ends up being a problem. Corporate America is going to spend 1 trillion dollars and 1 decade in litigation over Y2K mm-hmm. claims.
0: And they were like, "All right, let's update some infrastructure." As early
1: as 1997, companies were starting to sue each other. A produce store sued the manufacturer of their cash register saying we just paid twenty five hundred bucks for Cash Register. We know from the Millennium Bug that it's going to be useless in three years. So fuck you. We want our money back. And Quicken, you know Quicken Books, whatever that budgeting software. QuickBooks. Yeah. QuickBooks. Yeah. They had six pending class action lawsuits against them by nineteen ninety eight. Wow. Because people were saying, "Well, all of my budget data is going to get lost if this goes down."
0: And also, like, it's a it's a nice thing to drag. CEOs in front of Senate questioning for, right? Like, you can just see it in your mind. Just Mm -hmm. these, you know, there would have to be some kind of a big business whipping boy to take the task for all this. And it could be you. Right. And this is actually the only
1: aspect of Y2K that was that was partisan because Hmm. Republicans wanted to pass a law saying let's protect companies from their own customers if something bad happens. Let's make sure they don't have to pay out anything in damages. And Democrats, who are pretty captured by the trial lawyer lobby, wanted to make it easy for people to sue. And so they actually ended up passing a law that limited liability for companies, but didn't limit it like all the way. Hmm. So there was some red meat in there for lawyers and there was some red meat in there for companies.
0: This is a very meaty episode. Are you hungry?
1: I'm hungry. (laughs) (laughs) And so... As we know from sexual harassment lawsuits, as a corporation, you don't have to actually prevent something from happening. You have to show the court that you tried. (laughs) So if you are American Airlines, if your planes crash, if a thousand people die, if you get sued... What you can then say to the court afterwards is say, well, we shouldn't pay any damages because we spent $60 million updating our systems. We sat on the task force with the White House. Look how much we did. Mm -hmm. And so the companies in a place like Germany or France or Italy that don't have, they don't use liability to solve corporate problems the way that we do. They use regulation. The companies there could have just quietly updated their systems because they didn't have to say anything about it. They didn't have to push
0: off all these lawsuits. Because they weren't in a relationship with their government the way that children are with their parents. They're like, I'm doing my homework now. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, this is in the very bones of America. Like Ben Franklin in his autobiography has an anecdote that I love about how when he was running his printing press, he would then deliver, you know, his, his pamphlets and things by hand. So... He knew that people would look at him and go, there goes Ben Franklin pushing his barrow around. Look at that hardworking man (laughs) doing it all by himself. And it's like you can't see the workers that are in the shop. That's the point.
1: Yes. (laughs) And so this was the calculation that companies in these four English-speaking common law countries made. Hmm. Banks in Japan might have been having these problems too. And they were just like, no, no, we just quietly fix them. Like we quietly fix stuff all the time. Because we're not going to be fighting off lawsuits because, like, we have a real government. (laughs)
0: It's like, oh, kind of a flex, Japan. Yeah. (laughs) I would say that what we can learn from this is that as Americans, we are more likely to do things that we already need to be doing. Mm. If there is some kind of urgent reason involving our own safety or comfort, we appear also to be inclined after having done that to say, well, that was a lot of work. Not enough bad stuff happened. I didn't like that. <laughs> and that is perhaps an unhelpful right. perspective to take away from a story from which you could alternatively take the lesson of it's good to update our systems so that they are functional. Mm-hmm. And if we have to cook up a reason to compel us to do what we need to do anyway, then like maybe that's okay. Yeah. So I feel like this is a great example of the sort of gap between logic and emotion for a lot Mm. of us as humans where like we can figure it out intellectually that like if our systems are more functional, then that averts the kinds of tragedies that do move us to take action. Yeah. And yet it's harder to accept that as a felt reality of like, bow chicka bow wow, like I'm so excited (laughs) about strengthening our filing systems efficiency. Like it's, it's hard to really, this is why Virgos are so important. (laughs) Is that another bug? Is that what you mean? (laughs) It's a feature. It is a Virgo feature. (laughs) Uh -uh. So
1: that's it. This is is the story of Y2K. This is uh, why we should all stop using it as a proxy indicator for whatever we're actually arguing about on the internet.
0: There are some arguments that you can't settle over Twitter. (laughs) So, sorry. Are there, Sarah? Are there? (laughs) I know this is like news to you. I also like when... (laughs) When I went to call you to start this show. Oh, I know, I know, I know. You like didn't pick up I and I was like, that's weird. And then I looked on Twitter I and I was like, oh, he's tweeting about Corbin. I,
1: that I was fighting with somebody about Jeremy Corbin. Uh-huh. I know. Doing the show with you is such a better use of my time. I'm sorry. I was very I was like that's that's my guy. You were seeing me in my natural habitat. That's what it is. You're like looking inside the aquarium. You're like,
0: oh, Mike's doing what he does. Yeah, like when you go see the iguana <laughs> eat its little bugs, and you're like, I don't like bugs, but that iguana likes bugs. I don't like having Twitter arguments about British politics, but it's essential to Mike's mineral needs. <laughs>